Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. The title of my message is When to Say No to God. I have a question for you before I get started. How many of you have heard a message on when to say no to God? Anybody? I haven't either. I was raised in the church. I've heard probably thousands of messages. I don't remember ever hearing a message on when to say no to God. So I hope you're not already upset with me before we even get started. This morning, I'm going to tell you five stories. It's not a big deal. Just five stories. They're all from the Bible. It's going to be a simple message this morning. Two are from the New Testament. Three of the stories are from the Old Testament. And hopefully, as we go through these stories, we can draw some understanding, some meaning from what God has to say to us. First is from Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34. All three chapters. We're going to do a lot of reading this morning. Hope you're up to that. It says, when the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Who, who led the people out of Egypt? Well, you guys are very smart. You're reading. Yeah, God, God led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Yes? It wasn't Moses. Moses was just a guy that God used. But it was God who brought them deliverance. So they're giving credit where credit wasn't due. And they're all so referring to him as this fellow. I, I can't help but feel that the people of Israel sound, they sound a lot like Indians. Who is this fellow? This fellow Moses. So they say they don't know what happened to him. And then it goes on. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. What does God say to Moses? It's your fault you brought these people out of Egypt. So God also doesn't want to own these people. They're a rebellious group. I will try not to make that a repeated theme this morning. A rebellious group. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. I don't know about you this morning. My, my neck is a little bit stiff. Now, this is really interesting offer that God makes to Moses. He says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Doesn't that sound like a great offer? It does. I mean, these people have been really, really rebellious. They've been a pain the whole time. Moses has been trying to serve them and help them, bring them deliverance. And they complain and murmur and rebel. They give all kinds of problems. So, I don't know, if I were Moses, I think I'd be tempted. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against these people? Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt. <laughs> Moses is reminding God, it's not my fault, it's your fault. You're the one who brought these people out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. 
Why should the Egyptians say it was with the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, by the way. Most of you have probably heard Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob means supplanter, heel catcher, literally. Israel means governed by God. So Moses is using the good name, kind of reminding God that he gave a change to the name and made them Israel, governed by God. So remember your promise to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. By the way, that passage is from Genesis chapter 15. And it's interesting that Moses, he wrote the book of Genesis also, but it's interesting that he has this passage memorized, isn't it? And he's quoting the Bible to God. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So that's chapter 32. So, Moses goes down the mountain, he's talking with the people, he sees what the problem is, and we go on. Told you a lot of reading this morning. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. That would be the book of life. Moses is saying, if you don't save them, then don't save me. If you're going to judge them, then judge me. If you're going to send them to hell, then send me to hell with them. Did you all absorb that? Would anybody here pray that prayer? I, I, I'm, I'm glad I hear a few honest people saying no. <laughs> I don't think I would. It's extraordinary. Really extraordinary. So, that's one time that Moses said no to God. He said no to God's intent to destroy Israel. Now, We'll talk about some elements that are unified in this. A few points from this passage before we go on to the next time that Moses said no. It's in the very next chapter. And that is, Moses is referring to God's character and his reputation among, among the people of the world, saying, Lord, if you do this, it's going to be bad for your reputation. If you do this, the people of the world will disdain you. They'll think badly of you. Moses is more concerned about God's glory than he is about his own aggrandizement, his own comfort, his own ease. In some ways, it would have been easy for, easier for Moses if God had started over with him. Two, he refers to Scripture and God's promises in Scripture. So first, God's characters. Second, God's word. And reminds God of his word. And third, 
He is placing this relationship that he has with God and the relationship he has with people as being primary. That's, that's everything. Everything else is secondary. These other things are secondary. So, Moses says no to God. He even says, God, if you're going to do this, then wipe me out too. Then the story goes on. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, it's repeated, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered the promises he'd made. Notice Moses said Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. God is saying Abraham, Isaac, and supplanter, heel catcher, Jacob. And go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Does that sound good? Promises, prosperity, blessings, abundance. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Sorry, it makes me nervous reading that. Does it bother you at all? I feel the stiffness in my neck. And I might destroy you on the way. Now, please notice this. This is the second time that Moses says no to God. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send. He just said an angel. After God relented from destroying Israel, he revealed himself to Moses. It's maybe related to Moses saying no. We'll get back to that in just a few minutes. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name, his name, the Lord. And he passed by in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now. It says mercy to thousands and then punishment to the third and fourth generation. The way that the, the words are constructed, it can actually be translated. He shows mercy to the third, and, I'm sorry, he shows judgment to the third and fourth generation, but mercy and loving kindness to the thousandth generation. The words are actually connected in Hebrew. Hope you're all following. So when God describes himself, he affirms what Moses already knew. Moses knew God is a God of compassion, that he loves people. It is not his desire to wipe people out. It is not his desire to bring judgment, and it's not his desire to, to bring horrible, evil destruction to a whole nation of people. He's never desiring to do that. But he was willing to. Hope you're all following what I'm saying. I don't know if this is true. The Bible isn't really clear, so I'm just letting you know what I'm about to say. I'm not absolutely certain that it's true because the Bible doesn't tell us. I think God gave Moses a real choice and that if Moses had chosen differently, God was willing to wipe out the people of Israel. I don't think he was just playing with Moses. There's nowhere in this passage where it says that God was testing him. Hope you're following what I'm saying. I don't think he was offering to him a false alternative. He was giving him a real choice. Moses chose well. 
and his choice was based on God's character of love and forgiveness and kindness and the desire to bring glory to him. Maintaining love to thousands, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. The Lord, he said, if I found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Again, he's arguing with God. He doesn't like God's answer, saying, you know, you go up. I'll send an angel before you. I'm not going with you because I might wipe you out. If I found favor in your eyes, then Lord, go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Please notice that. Us. Our. Our iniquity. Our sin. Was Moses the one sinning? No. Was he the one who was filled with iniquity? No. But he's identifying with the sins of the people that God has given him to lead, that he is entrusted to his care. Now, obviously, this sounds a lot like Jesus. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I'd like to also suggest, suggest to you that when Moses is talking about his identification with the people of God, we actually do something very similar when we join together in communion. I'm so glad we had communion together this morning. For me, whenever I go to a church and speak, I'm always grateful if it's a communion service. You know, some traditions, they'll have communion every time. Other services, other, uh, other traditions, they don't have communion that often. For me, communion is a beautiful thing for many reasons. One is obvious, you know, the old church, the ancient name for communion is Eucharist. That's the Greek word for thank you, giving thanks. Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So we're thanking God for loving us so much that he gave his only begotten son. So we think about Christ. But it's also called communion. In our church tradition, we refer to it as communion. You know, com means together. And you know what union means. It's kind of a double way of saying union. It's union together. It's together, together. Communion. When we take of that, we're not just identifying with Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. We're not just remembering that. We are becoming the body of Christ. We are proclaiming we are part of his body. We are identifying with his body and his blood. And in doing so, we are also identifying with each other. So just as I take of the bread and you take of the, you know, the bread, we are actually ingesting those molecules together. And in ancient Mideaster tradition, when you eat bread together, you're actually becoming one with each other. The molecules from that bread come and become a part of me. Same piece of bread is going into you. Same loaf becoming a part of who you are. Hope you're following what I'm saying. We are one with each other. When you sin, I'm affected. When I am wrong, you are affected. We may not realize it, but we're tied together in bonds that we can't really perceive. So that when we go to God, Jesus taught us when you pray, pray like this, our Father. He didn't say my Father. So you go through the Lord's Prayer, 
There's not a single I or me or mine in the whole prayer. It's all our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And I'll just say it the way I say it. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does anybody ever pray that? Okay, does anybody ever really think that? When you're praying, are you praying for your will or are you constantly praying for God's? There's a unity. Moses is identifying with the people. So it goes on. Asking forgiveness for our sins. He says, you have said, I know you by name. And you have found favor with me. So Moses is reminding God what he told him. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. You know, the Psalms say, the people of Israel knew God's works. Moses knew his ways. People of Israel saw God doing miracles and these things happened and they were brought deliverance out of Egypt and all that. But Moses understood his character, his ways, the way that he functions from the inside out. Teach me your ways. So he goes on. He already knew God's ways, the Bible tells us. But he goes on. He says, if you're pleased with me, teach, you, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So please notice that. Teach me your ways that I may know you. For Moses, his relationship with God was primary and everything else was secondary. And even his relationship with the people of Israel was based on that primary relationship with God. God loves the world. He loves his people. If you have a love for God, then that's going to be demonstrated in the way we, we treat each other. So, that's the first story. I have five stories. That's the longest, I'll just let you know. The other stories are shorter. Second group that I think we can really learn from, just a couple characters that worked together. You've all heard of the prophet Elijah, yes? And his servant, Elisha. Does anybody ever get confused by that? I'll just ask you a favor. If I ever switch them, just let me know because I get them mixed up. So when I'm thinking Elijah, sometimes I'll say Elisha and I'll think Elisha and I'll say Elijah. So far, I'm not getting them mixed up, but I probably will before we finish this morning. So Elijah knew he was going to be taken up to heaven. He didn't die in the normal way. Elisha also knew Elijah was going to be taken up to heaven. So, let's just read this passage. It's very interesting. It came to pass, when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by the whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Tarry here, wait here, I ask you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said to him, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, no. Get it? The prophet is saying to the prophet, no. As, as you live and as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. So they went to Bethel. Next. The sons of the prophets that were from Bethel or at Bethel came to Elisha and they said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from, from your head today? They said, yeah, I know it. Be quiet. Interesting. So... God had already revealed to Elisha that Elijah was on his way. 
So when Elijah tells him, you stay here, I'm going that way. Elisha ignores the instructions of the prophet. You know, there are some people who are looking for instructions. They want spiritual input. And rather than going directly from God and hearing from him, which is difficult and it takes work, they'll go to a prophet. They want to hear a word from a prophet. Are you following what I'm saying? Yes? Let me just tell you, there, if God is instructing you and you really have a powerful relationship with him, there may come a prophet that will tell you to do something that God didn't tell you to do. You need to do what God tells you to do. It's about relationship with him. That's first. That's everything. It's not just obedience to some kind of authority structure. We'll go on with that in just a moment. There's another story. It's not just obedience to the prophet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. This is the second time. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. He replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he said. Be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Jordan. Are you all getting the picture? This is the third time. As surely as the Lord lives, Elisha said, and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. And you all know the story, right? They're walking along. This chariot of fire comes between Elijah and Elisha, picks up Elijah, takes him up to heaven. He didn't have to die the usual way. Sounds nice. I mean, I, I don't really fear death. There's other things I might fear, but not death. Um, but I'd, I'd really like to go this way. You know. If I have to go, I'd rather go in a way that isn't painful. So three times Elijah told Elisha to stay. Three times Elisha refused. Had Elisha obeyed the prophet Elijah, he would have missed out. You know, as they're on the way before the chariot comes and carries him away, Elijah said, what would you like from me? Elisha says, I want a double portion of the spirit that's on you. That's impressive. Elijah was the prophet of the generation, of his generation. And Elisha is bold enough that he wants a double portion of that spirit. So Elijah says, if you are with me, if you see me as I am taken up, you'll get the double portion. You'll get what you ask for. If you go through the Bible and you count, I mean, it's not a big deal. Maybe this isn't exactly the point. But if you count the number of miracles that are mentioned with Elijah, and you count the number of miracles associated with the ministry of Elisha, Elisha had about twice as many. My guess is it's not an accident. He got that double portion. If he had not disobeyed the prophet, he would have missed out on the blessings that God intended for him. So, sometimes we have to say no to God. Sometimes we have to say no to the prophet. Sometimes we have to say no to authority that God has actually placed in our lives. There's another story. This is the third story. You probably all know it. Ruth chapter 1. Beautiful story. And uh, you may or may not know, I would guess that you probably do, because of this church, you know, they teach through the Bible. You, you get lots of good input, and even if it weren't preached as it is, I know many of you are going through the Bible, right? Reading 
I would recommend if you're not doing it, get a Bible plan where you're going Genesis all the way through Revelation. It gives you a different perspective. So, Naomi has a couple of sons. Their names mean weakly and sickly. And Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons, weakly and sickly, die. But before they died, they married Orpah and Ruth. Now, by the way, it's Orpah. It's not Oprah. In case you're wondering, uh, it is Orpah. By the way, you may not have heard Oprah. You know the Oprah Winfrey? Her parents got the letters mixed. They were actually naming her after this character in the Bible. So Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, you guys go back home. And she actually says this three times. You guys go back home, go to your families, you know, maybe the Lord, and she prays that the Lord will bless them with a good husband, that they'll have kids and be blessed. Finally, Naomi the third time said, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And Ruth gives this Beautiful response. It is quoted in almost every Christian wedding. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. It's beautiful, isn't it? Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates us. Did you catch that? Even death, you know, we talk about until death do we part. She's saying even death should not separate us. Beautiful commitment that she's made. See, for her, the relationship was more important. And notice what she says, the Lord. She's referring to the Lord as her God. And she's saying, your God will be my God. So she ignored the instructions of the person who had the authority. And please think about it. What if Ruth had not said no? We would, number one, we wouldn't have the book of Ruth in the Bible. We would never heard of her. But as it is, she became the grandmother of David and the great, 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 grandmother of Jesus. The Son of God, the Messiah. If she had not said no, she would have missed out on the blessings of God. So those are the first three stories from the Old Testament. Saying no to God, saying no to God's prophet, saying no to people who were given legitimate authority over us, all based on the relationship with God, and that relationship is primary before everything else. What happens when God says no to us? I probably shouldn't have written that. What happens when the shoe is on the other foot? I'm having difficulty imagining God wearing my shoes. It doesn't fit. But what happens when God tells us no? How do we respond? For that, I think we need to go to the New Testament. Actually, he said no to many people in the Old Testament as well. He said no to David when David wanted to build the temple. So David did everything he needed to to prepare, to get everything ready so that 
his son Solomon could build the temple. In the New Testament, I think of Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you'd like, you can turn there. Obviously, it's up here for you. We don't know what the ailment was, but he had a problem. He said, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now, in this passage, Paul doesn't make a list, but he could have said, I, whatever, I have my degrees, I have my certificates. You should be impressed by that. I've planted dozens of churches. You should be impressed with that. I've prayed for people, seen them healed. I've given words of prophecy. And I'll just let you know I've written uh, several books that end up in the New Testament. He could go on. And please listen. If he boasted, he would be right. But he didn't make the list. I made the list. Instead, he said... Or because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this this morning. But you know, there's some people who are in the ministry who are conceited. And by faith, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that you're not thinking about me when I say that. Um, People who have not really been humbled by being in the presence of God. And that misrepresents who God is. You can't help it. The Bible says, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. If I see somebody who's strutting around and they've, they've got a real clear ego issue, I think, oh, gosh, God bless that person. person really needs God's blessing. They need to be humbled by God's Spirit before they're humbled by circumstances. So, because of these surpassingly great revelations, Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh to make sure I wouldn't become conceited. And it's interesting. Three times, do you see this repeated theme? So three times, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. Three times, Elijah, Elisha, I made the mistake. Elisha said no. Three times, Naomi said to Ruth, Ruth, go back to your people. Three times, Ruth said no. Three times, Paul asked, please take this away from me. We don't know what the, what the, um, the thorn in the flesh is. We don't know. The word for thorn is, is like one of these, it's actually a tent peg. You could use it to drive into the ground to hold a tent in place. It's not like a little, you know, you know these really niggling, obnoxious thorns and roses and such. That's not what we're talking about. He's not talking about an inconvenience. He's talking about a major problem. It looks like it's physical. We don't know. I'm really grateful that we don't know what it is because... The thorn in the flesh could be anything. So I can relate it to whatever I'm going through. You're facing some kind of difficulty? Maybe God's using that as a thorn in the flesh, getting your attention, getting you to come to Him. He's actually more more interested in His relationship with you than He is with your comfort. So, 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away, away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, how does Paul respond? He said, I could boast about all these things I've done. What does he boast in? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, please notice, I will boast in the difficulty. And for Christ's sake, I delight. I will boast and delight. I delight in weaknesses. Do you delight in weaknesses? I tell you, it was difficult for me to drag myself out of bed in the morning, this morning. I don't delight in those weaknesses. In insults, do you delight in insults? Do you like it when people put you down? In hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And what is the strength? It's the strength in Christ. It's the strength of the Lord. He is bringing glory to God most when he's the weakest. When God demonstrates that he can use us in our frailty, he is glorified. He gets the honor. If you come to my office, you see a bunch of certificates on the wall. I don't have any certificates on the wall. Actually, I recently got a certificate from a place called Daily Bean. Forgive me for giving an advertisement, but it's a terrific coffee shop. Best coffee shop in town. Uh, they gave me a certificate for being the best purchaser of their coffee and one of their little sweets. I thought, you know, that's a certificate I should put up. <laughs> I don't have any other certificates to put up on the wall. But if you come to my office and I have the, you know, bachelors of whatever, masters of this, master, isn't that funny? I think it's also, I think the degree, the name, master of divinity, that's just funny. That's a funny name for a degree. I don't have a master of divinity. And you know, my favorite one is the doctor of ministry. Because when people shorten it and they talk about their degree, they say, I have a demon. You know, I hear somebody say that and I'll say, okay, brother, we'll pray for you. So you come into the office and you see all these certificates, all these honors. You know, you go to some people's offices, they have all their certificates on the wall. If you have this, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make fun of you. I don't, I'm not talking to, about anybody here. So if you have the certificates and everything on your wall, I'm sure you need to have that for some reason. But you come to my office, if you have certificates on the wall and I have the degrees and I have all these, you know, statues like when in fourth grade I came in second in the, in the race. So I have my little statue then you might expect something of me. But if you come to my office and I've got nothing to show, nothing impressive, you might think, okay, I'll look to Jesus. Maybe he can speak to this guy. I don't know. I hope you're following what I'm saying. Why don't we glory in our weaknesses? Not in honors or accomplishments or whatever. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. When I am weak, then I am strong. You know, I know I already said it. Forgive me for the repetition. God is more interested in his relationship with us than anything else. So, you know, I, I think about the messages 
since the new year. Um, Pastor Victor has spoken on generosity. A Christian is a generous person. To be a Christian is to be generous. He's spoken on the subject of God desiring that we live in forgiveness, that we walk in God's grace and his forgiveness. He's talked about God desiring our prosperity. And you know, the Bible teaches all of that. It's no question. God desires us to walk in forgiveness. He wants us to know peace. He desires our prosperity in every area of our lives. And he is more interested in our relationship with him than he is in our comfort or our prosperity. In other words, you know, there's going to be times when <laughs> some of us work too much. I'm sure nobody here. But some of us work too much, yeah? In fact, in today's culture, we're kind of proud of our ability to boast about how tired we are. Because, you know, we work from early in the morning, six, seven days a week, till late at night. You know, if you won't rest, God may allow you to get sick just so he has some time with you. You know, it's difficult to be distracted with a bunch of things other than prayer when you're lying on a bed and you can't get out of bed, except maybe to go to the bathroom. I hope you're following what I'm saying. He's more interested in that relationship than he is in anything else. And I think he desires that we would have that same concern as well, that we put his character, his glory, his will above all else. And that will drive us to love others, and, and that brings us to the last of the five stories. And probably many of you have already guessed, it's Jesus. God told Paul, no, we're not impressed with that. God told his only begotten son, no. You all know Matthew chapter 26. Refers to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says again three times. It says, going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground. This is Jesus. Jesus fell on his face to the ground. He was so distraught, so emotionally torn up about what he knew he was going to be facing the next day. And he prayed, Father, if it is possible, make, may this cup pass from me, be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup. The cup, people talk about what is a cup. Some people talk about God turning his back on Jesus. Honestly, I, if that's what you think, I'm not going to try to argue with you. But I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. Throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the cup of God's wrath being poured out on all people. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself. I don't believe that relationship with the Father was ever broken. But he was going to take our punishment. I think it's difficult for us to conceptualize not just the physical pain that he went through, but the spiritual anguish that he experienced. He took the judgment that belongs to us upon himself. He knew he was facing that. He asks God, Father, take this away from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray that you fall not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can anybody relate to that? Every morning when I have to get up in the morning, I can relate to that passage. He went away a second time and prayed, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. 
Three times Jesus asked, Father, if you can let this cup pass from me, please do. Three times. What's God's answer? His relationship with us is primary. So, God said no to Jesus. The only way for his will for the redemption of us, all of humanity, the only way it could be accomplished is if Jesus went to the cross. God had something much better for Jesus than mere avoidance of pain. God planned for the salvation of all humanity through him. And Jesus' glorification was through the cross. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without death, there is no resurrection. I mean, think about it. Resurrection means you're coming back to life. You have to die first. And Jesus calls us to walk in his footsteps, to follow him. So, I'll get to Philippians in just a second. And whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it may have been Paul. Hebrews chapter 12. Laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul continues on. And he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, he did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was found in the form of man. And being found in the form of man, he humbled himself to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, got it? Therefore. Therefore, God also highly exalted him that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' own glorification was through the cross. And he told us, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Come. I've quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer many times. You'll have to forgive me if, you've, if you go online and you find some of my messages. You've probably found this quote several times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Nice message. So what do we do when God tells us no? I think we need to understand God has a much better and higher and more beautiful plan for us than we have for ourselves. If he tells you no, it's because he has a much better yes. Even if the no means that you have to go to the cross first. Because in Christ, there is always the resurrection from the dead. A much higher and better future for us. So, five stories. A few lessons from people saying no to God. Our relationship with God comes first. Our understanding of his character and his good and his glory is before everything else. It even comes before obedience to him. If he tells us to do something that we know doesn't match his love for all of humanity, we probably need to argue with him. He's probably just waiting for the argument. You know, I can't help but think of the prophet uh, Jeremiah. I've been teaching a home Bible study. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. It's taken us a few months. So we, we go and we meet for Bible study. And I tell you, we meet to be a bit depressed because the book of Jeremiah is really depressing. It's depressing because it's the story of God's wrath being poured out on Israel because over and over and over and over, they rejected him. They embraced a bunch of idols. 
they rejected him in the way that they treated each other. It was a nation of injustice, a nation of perversion, a nation of corruption. And finally, God brought judgment. You know what's interesting? Often Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You know in the prophecies where it says, and I am weeping. Almost every one of those in the book of Jeremiah, it first says, thus says the Lord. And then it says, I am weeping. Now, when you get to that, you honestly don't know because there are several places where it says, thus says the Lord. And then Jeremiah begins to argue with God. So you don't know if Jeremiah is saying he's weeping because he sees the destruction that's coming on Israel, or is it God that is weeping? I'd like to suggest to you, maybe it's both. The prophet understood God's heart. And you look at the book of Lamentations, which is a kind of epilogue to the book of Jeremiah. It's a collection of five poems. Each one is an acrostic. So it goes through the ABCDs of the book, uh, of the language of Hebrew. So, chapter 1 has 22 verses, 22 letters. Chapter 2 has 22 verses, one verse for every letter. Chapter 3 has three verses for every letter, so it has 66 verses. 4 has 22 and 5 has 22. In Hebrew scripture, in Hebrew poetry, it's the central part of the poetry that gives you the main point. Jeremiah begins with the destruction of Israel. Jeremiah begins with the destruction of Israel and all the judgment that's coming upon them. You know what the central verse is? It's verses 32 and verse 33, where it says, God never brings judgment because he desires to. He longs to bring mercy and blessing. That's the central verse of Lamentations. It's central, I think, to the whole Bible. You want to understand the Bible? You can read Genesis through Revelation. It ends with the judgment of humanity. The book of Revelation is a heavy book. But it begins with God creating and making a plan for our salvation. The central place of the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the central place for human history as well. And whenever the Bible wants us to point, sorry, it wants to point us to God's love, it always points us to the cross. In this is love manifest, Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Supreme emblem of God's love. There's a bumper sticker in the U.S. I've never seen it here. I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he spread out his arms and said, this much, and died. So much. That's the central message of the Bible. He loves us. Doesn't desire our punishment. He doesn't desire our suffering, but he will allow it if it brings us closer to him. For listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.